Well, good evening. I'm thankful you're here tonight. Let's start by praying together. Just asking the Lord to lead us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for just the way you're moving in our hearts, our lives. I thank you for the call that you've placed on our lives. I thank you, thank you Lord, for how you've, you've commissioned us and, and called us to be your ambassadors. And I pray that we would be a group of people found faithful to you. Lord, we believe in you, we trust in what you have said, and we pray that you would give us wisdom as we navigate the waters of our culture and the relationships that we have. I pray that we would be, um, we would be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, that we would be um, not afraid to tackle the questions of our culture and the questions of our day. I thank you that you modeled that for us. So lead us. We want to be like you, Lord. And so would your spirit guide us tonight and, and, and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, I'm glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 119. Um, I, you know, I just can't get away from going back to verse 1. I want you to go to verse 1. Psalm 119. Really, really great passage of Scripture we're not going to read the whole thing. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. We're just going to read a few, two of the sections through verse 16. But listen to this. Um, Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when, you're right, when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. Your mouth. Notice that. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. What a, what a beautiful challenge and passage of scripture is as you, and I love the psalmist passion to seek the Lord. I mean, seeking his face, but also turning his attention to the word of God. And, and you know, it's interesting as, I, as we navigate the cultural waters that we live. I, I, I read a book uh, last year called The Great Evangelical Recession. Um, and the author's slipping me. Um, uh, anybody remember his name? Uh, anyway. Um, I'll think of it in a little bit. When I wake up in the middle of the night, uh, I'll think of it. But um, he, he articulates that 
that evangelical Christians in the United States of America, by evangelical, we're talking about those that would believe that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that, uh, that there's, there's not multiple ways to heaven, that uh, he's a sociologist. He makes, evangelical Christians make up 7% of the United States of America. 7%. That those of us that, that, that would say, this is God's word, we believe this, and Jesus is the only way to heaven, 7% of the United States of America would hold to that conviction, that belief. Which, think about that, 7%. Which, it's, it's, um, it's interesting as... As we navigate these these waters, you can you can if that really is true. I mean, sociologists have a way of doing their studies. If that really is an accurate picture, it's no wonder that our culture is going the the direction it is. And but here's the reality: we're called to this battle. Okay, we're not to run and hide, and, and we don't have to worry about the questions that are thrown at us. As a believer, as a follower of Christ, we are standing on, some, on, on a foundation that Jesus said. Remember when he said uh, in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're like a wise man who built his house on what? Rock. The rains came, the winds blew, it beat against that house, but it did not fall. And so we've got to understand the, the foundation we're standing on. Now, um, have you ever heard the name John Huss? John Huss. Uh, in, um, John Huss was born uh, to a poor peasant family um, in Prague, in that, in that area, Bohemia. Uh, and uh, he was, um, but he just had a love for the Lord, a love for God's word. And, and uh, he, um, he went on to a, a university as he grew up, and he uh, earned several degrees in theology, and and he just uh, became this uh, um, this student of the Word of God. In fact, that when he um, it wasn't very long after he started, you know, studying and teaching, that he became the rector of the university in Prague. I mean, it was a just a. Uh, loved by people, and and he was one of the the first leaders. He became a pastor um, at at a, at a church right outside of of his uh, of Prague in that area. And and he was um, he did something kind of unique because most preachers of his day would preach in Latin, but. Huss would uh, would preach in the language of the people. So he had like a church with like three thousand people coming to it. They just loved him, and and um, and but but he was quite controversial as he studied the Bible. Be, and you know, it was the morning of July sixth, fourteen fifteen. So he he was an old guy <laughs> by our standards, but. Um, he, uh, he really was one of the best preachers of his generation. But on, on July 6th, uh, he was put on another trial. They, 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 they arrested him. Uh, he had already been in prison for seven months. His health had deteriorated. They had promised him safe passage to where his trial was going to be held. And, and, but yet, right when he got there, they arrested him. They threw him in this prison where he was right next to the sewer. Uh, his cell was just horrendous right next to the sewer. He got real sick. 
at, in this in this prison cell, and he um, ended up he um, they, they they didn't want him to die there. They wanted to put him on trial, and so they they kind of healed him up a bit. And then they said, okay, we're going to put him on trial. They, they gave him a priestly robe, uh, gave him a Lord's Supper cup, but it was more of a symbolic action. And they paraded him in front of all these people. They ripped it off of him. They took the cup out of his hand. And, and, um, and it was interesting. They, they drug him out into a field, and they were going to kill him. And uh, as, as they drag him out there, uh, it was interesting because uh, he was quoted to, he, he started quoting this hymn. He wouldn't recant. They were saying, recant. Uh, uh, take back what you've said. But he wouldn't do it. And, and so he started quoting this hymn, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon us. Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me, thou who art born of the Virgin Mary. So that's what he kept quoting. He wouldn't recant. And, and, uh, but they, they, they lit him on fire that day. Um, <laughs> And they burned him at the stake. But what's interesting about John Huss is um, about 100 years later, there was this chubby, earthy uh, monk that uh, started studying the Bible. And uh, he started reading John Huss. They called them the Hussites. Those are the people that followed John Huss. And, and this fat, chubby, or probably fat, uh, German monk um, is a, a guy by the name of Martin Luther. And, and Martin Luther was influenced by John Huss. It, it was interesting, uh, when you think about why John Huss was killed, it, it, it was, uh, as he studied the scriptures and taught them, um, he, he realized that this Roman Catholic system that had been developed was, had gotten corrupt had gotten kind of out of balance, had, had really um, uh, gotten off the writings of Scripture. And, and what's interesting, he's, he, he's, he said this, and, and this is kind of the guy he is, okay? He, he said, when I was young in years and reason, I too belonged to the foolish sect of Roman Catholicism. But when the Lord gave me knowledge of Scripture, I discharged that kind of stupidity from my foolish mind. So it's like, tell us what you really think, man. Come on, uh, be honest. But so he may have not minced words much, but but he was committed to scripture, and that was his his contribution. He wrote a book called uh, De Ecclesia, and and I want you to know the the issue that was leading to his death that led to the the, the church killing him. He said in that book that the authority of the Bible is greater than the authority of the church. That's what he said. And they were like, we got to kill him. We're going to kill him. And, uh, and, and it's interesting because um, he, he really got bent out of shape when the, um, right around Huss's time, they started selling indulgences. Have you ever heard of that in church history? When, when they were uh, selling indulgences, that basically means that the church was, was profiting from, uh, from its members because people didn't, they just trusted their leaders. And whatever their leaders said, they said, yeah, okay, you are speaking for God, so whatever you say is fine. And, um, and they would come up and say, look, if you are going to sin, uh, pay us money and we'll forgive your sin. 
And, and you could even pay for future sins. You know, hey, I'm going to really be a jerk today, and so I'm going to give you a little extra money so I can go do it. Okay, so that was kind of the thinking. But, but the, the reality is people didn't study the scriptures. And, and Huss was killed because as he studied the scriptures, he was like, wait a minute, there's some inconsistency here. Now, we've challenged you to, uh, to look at, last week if you were here, to look at the Chicago um, um, is it a council on inerrancy, or it wasn't, was it a council? Do they call it a council? Statement. statement. It's a statement, not a council. Uh, a Chicago statement on inerrancy. And we challenge you to look at it, but in your notes, I, I, I put articles one and two, and, 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 and these are really important. And, and I want you to know this, these statements come from, from many, many years of church history that struggled because, um, you know, Haas was one of those guys that, that called the church out and said, look, you're, you're striving for world power. You don't really, you're not really focused on keeping the scriptures. But this uh, statement, Article 1, these theologians and teachers wisely understood church history and, and the mistakes that were made in the past. So they said, we affirm that the holy scriptures are to be received as the authoritative word of God. Now, uh, there's a lot of truth in that statement. And this is where we are as a church, that the, that the Bible is authoritative, meaning that, that it is our third, uh, we, we submit to what God's word says. And so I say it all the time like this, if we ever discover a belief that is contrary to the word of God, then we're compelled to change our beliefs to line up with the Bible. If we ever find a practice that is contrary to the word of God, we're compelled to change our practices and align with scripture. Amen. It's like, second, look, turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. I want you to see this verse. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. It's not in your notes, but just write that down. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. It says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it is, as it, as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So we understand the word of God as, as God's message to us. And, and like, I hope that we would have been Hussites if we would have lived in the 1400s saying, God, we're going to accept your word over what the church says, that, that we're going to see it uh, not as a human word, but as, a, as, a, as it actually is the word of God. Now, that's why they say we deny the scriptures receive authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. Because this was the difficulty with the church at that time. They were receiving a human source um, versus evaluating whether this came from Scripture. Now, now, so what I am asking and challenging all of us to do is to think. Because so often, we are, we are in church settings. And we're the same today. We're in church settings, and we don't listen 
to what a preacher says. Or we accept what people say as, oh, well, you have a degree or you've been to school or, or so you must be an expert. And we don't check sources. We don't check. I, I, here's, a, here's the truth. Not everything on the Internet is true. I just want you to know that. Okay? And so you have to, you have to look. There are many times you have to dig deep. You know, all through Scripture, we're warned about the wolves in sheep's clothing. That, um, and, and so it's, it's important that, that this statement was made because we're not going to allow a human source or even a church tradition to, um, to overstep what God's word says. And this is a very important uh, reality. I mean, I mean, when you think about um, this truth that man does not stand in authority over Scripture. Man does not stand in authority over God. Scripture stands in authority over us. God stands in authority over us. And this is very important to understand. Even in Genesis 3, sin started. I mean, from the very beginning, it was that question that was given to Eve, did God say? Did God say that? And that was the very first moment where it came into man's mind that, you know what? I may have to evaluate if I agree with God or not. And, and, and so it's important for us to recognize that we are a people that, are, that, that understand our church tradition doesn't trump what God's word says. Our, um, you know, Article 2 is similar. Let's look at Article 2. We affirm that the scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of Scripture. So, so again, let's think about this. The authority of the church is subordinate to what God's Word says. It's underneath the authority of Scripture. We deny that church creeds, councils, or declarations have authority greater than, authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. Now, here's what happened throughout church history is is in spite of the warnings of revelation in spite of these challenges that uh, th that we've been given or these warnings that we've been given man has historically created um, um, ideas and, and 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 edicts and dictated practices that were seen as equal to scripture or in some some instances over scripture. For example, you, um, you look at some church tradition um, issues that were elevated to be over scripture, the selling of indulgences. Have you ever heard about uh, when the Pope would speak ex cathedra? Have you ever heard of that term? Okay, ex cathedra means that there have been several popes throughout history that would speak ex cathedra. That means he is speaking as God himself. And, and whatever he says would be equal to what has already been revealed. Now, there's real danger there because those are men. 
And, 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 you know, in Catholic tradition, they're not the only ones. Mormon tradition has the same, same issue with their leaders of their church. They can articulate things that are considered uh, equal to Scripture. And, 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 and I, want, I want us to recognize that these are things we must deny. So again, these, these statements, and I, and I, and I, want us to, I want to be clear that we're not elevating this uh, Chicago uh, statements on inerrancy above Scripture. What they're trying to, what we're trying to do, what what these men did was articulate how we can trust the Bible. Now, over the next, we're, we're continuing to progress through this systematically. Um, and I know it was a little uncomfortable last week when we we're trying to uh, wrestle through some terms and some ideas, but. But again, it's time for some mental sweat, okay? So, so we got to think. And, and this is what I pray we are. We're a congregation that thinks. We're a congregation that doesn't just blindly follow. But we are a group of people that are able to listen to what is being said and what is being taught. And, and, and I'm not asking you to not trust us. But I'm asking you to think about what we say and what any preacher says. Amen. Because the world is too easily swayed and, and people are too easily swayed. So this is why moments like this are so critical for us as a church to, to roll up our sleeves and say, okay, let's, let's dig into this and let's use our head. Let's, let's love the Lord our God with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. You know, because sometimes we want to say, well, I'll get passionate, and I'll just yell louder. <laughs> but let's, let's think, and let's be able to, to articulate um, our faith, and that's why we're doing this, Rob. So I want to um, start with a clarification of terms. Uh, who was here last week? Raise your hand. Most everybody. Awesome. So last week, we, we got off to a running start. And uh, I've heard several different people say, oh my gosh, I, I, I could not take it all in. This is not designed for you to take it all in in one setting. Uh, we're trying to we're trying to feed you from a from a from a fire hydrant. Um, and that's what we do in these intense studies, these these four and five week studies. But that's also the beauty of of recording them, and so that you can go back and listen to them several times. And, and at the end of this series, I'll actually go through and, and make videos for the, for the presentations themselves and have make those available so that we can sh we can visit them anytime we want to. Um, but there's a couple of things that I want you to do as, as we continue to get into this study. One is, don't worry. If you don't get something, if you don't get you know, a point, don't let that ruin the rest of your night. Just say, okay, have to come back to that one later. And, and just pop your mind back out of, out of gear, pull the clutch back in, <laughs> grab a different gear, and let's go, right? Um, and two, but do try to wrestle with, with, with it as much as possible. And if you have a question, 
throw it up there. I will ask you questions and I'm looking for participation, but if you have at any point a question, now maybe I'll have to, we'll have to try to guide you because some, some things we may be getting ahead of ourselves and we have to slow down. But if you have a question, do not, do not be afraid to um, ask it and, and we'll do our best to, to field those. My mother and father-in-law asked me a question uh, over dinner tonight, and it's a question that I had for years, and I believe it's probably a question that many of you still have even after last week. Now, last week we argued for uh, inerrancy and infallibility. All right, let's do a quick survey. Who can explain those terms to me? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of a little intimidating, right? We're going to, yeah, Okay. Hopefully you go home and study those, but, but here's the thing. There's, there is a difference between the two. They aren't the exact same, but they are absolutely critical. Okay, so start with one. Inerrant. Literally, it has to do with, are these Bibles that we hold in our hands, are they accurate? Are they correct as far as what the authors wrote down? Infallible is, is it true? So let me give you an example here real quick. All right, I could tell, I could tell you a story. So Rob tells a story, all right? And then someone later on, they copy my story, okay? And then they make copies of copies and so on and so forth, okay? Inerrancy has to do with whether or not these copies accurately reflect the original story. Do you get that? So now let's talk about infallibility. Infallibility has to do with whether or not my story itself is true. Okay? So you could copy my story down accurately, but in the end, my story wasn't true. So there, these two go hand in hand. Infallibility has to do with, can we trust these copies that we have accurately reflect what the original probably said? Infallibility has to do with, is it true? Can I trust it? Or is it going to mislead me in the things it tells me? The Bible is infallible in, in that it is the word of God, and therefore it is true. And we believe that it has been uh, accurately preserved over time and is therefore inerrant. All right? So those two terms, I want to uh, make sure you, you can walk away. You're going to have to wrestle with this. You won't get this day one. You won't get this week one. You won't get this month one. Um, this is stuff that, that you know, uh, Chris and I have been doing for years and years and years, and we still have to stop and think. Now, we've gotten a several-month head start on you. <laughs> besides all of our degrees and all of that stuff. It's like we've been preparing for this study, so we get to wrestle with this stuff. So we can sit up here and talk about it and act like we know some stuff, but we too have to freshen up. We have to brush up on this. So don't get down on yourself if you're not getting it in week one, because we're also having to go back and say, yeah, what was that, right? And that's the humility of us learning as Christians. As, as followers of Christ, we'll continue to learn, and you'll learn some stuff, and you'll forget some stuff, and you have to relearn some stuff. But I want you to have those two terms in your mind because that is a very quick, easy summary from last week. This week, we're going to look at uh, history, all right? But I want to start with this quote, and it's kind of small, so I'll read it to you. This is from an old preacher that I very um, much admire, uh, Murray McShane. And he says, thirsting for the word, he says, when two travelers are going through the wilderness, you may know which of them is thirsty by his always looking out for wells. So it is with believers they love the word, read, read and preached. They thirst for it more and more. I do not wonder much when the world stays away from our meetings, 
for the word in prayer. But when you do, I am dumb. My soul will weep in secret places for your pride. He is saying he gets it when the world doesn't want to come and study the world, the word, excuse me. But when believers don't come to study the word, there's a problem there, isn't there? And we are a people of the book, and we should hunger and thirst for the word. And he, I love his analogy. He's like, you know, you know how to tell when someone's thirsty? When they're looking for something to drink. You know how to tell when a believer is thirsty? When they're trying to find a place where the word is being taught. Whew. Do you get that? You're thirsty when you're looking for the word to be taught. Not to be entertained, not to be in a social group. When you're thirsty, you're looking for the word to be taught. And I love this idea that Mary Machine gives us. So we're going to look at uh, history this week. So we're going to look at the, the Bible as history. We're going to focus in on the New Testament documents. And we're also going to look at early Christian theology. All right, so let's jump in here. You've got a timeline. And I changed this up a little bit since uh, Chris made the notes. So you have to forgive me. My timeline, I, 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 I adjusted a little bit. I'm, uh, I'm flying by the seat of my pants in the midnight hours um, in a hotel posted up somewhere in Southern California when I'm making this stuff. So I've got to, like, you know, spoon feed it out to Chris. As he's like, are you done with it? I'm like, no. Here, here, here's, you know, and sometimes I'll be working on it all the way up to the minute that we get up here. So my timeline looks a little different than yours. But go ahead, and, and if you're interested, fill in the little things. Um, the things that I want to point out to you that are very important, if we look at, at the Bible as history. So the very far left, first date, now this isn't all the dates that you should know, but these are some important ones. 1445 BC, and that is the date of the Exodus. Is this debated? Yeah, everyone debates everything. But, but the majority of scholars would agree that that's the time of the Exodus, okay? So the Exodus is pretty early in the Bible, isn't it, right? Uh, back there in the Pentateuch, you know, Genesis, Exodus, right? You know, way back there. 1445 B.C., so 1445 years before the birth of Christ, roughly, all right? So that's a, major, that's a major date. 931 B.C. is when King Solomon dies, and that's when the kingdom splits. Uh, we have a group that goes to the north, and there's a group that stays down in the south. All right, so then in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians, and then move a little further along, 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, uh, Judah, uh, Jerusalem, that, that falls. The Babylonian Empire, that, that, that happens, right? Same time that Daniel's taken away, and, and all sorts of bad things are happening. And then we go a little further, and Nehemiah is basically the Old Testament close. Now I know Nehemiah is not the last book of the Old Testament, but you got to remember your Bible isn't in chronological order, <laughs> okay? So uh, we, we, have, we have roughly 400 B.C. is the last book, Nehemiah, closing out the Old Testament. And then we have 33 A.D. is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the, those, those uh, two events happened the same year, didn't they? <laughs> That's a trick question. <laughs> he didn't wait till next year to be rose from the dead, right? And to rise from the dead. He died and he rose uh, the same year, okay? That is a very important date for us, all right? But let's zoom in here and take a look at these right here. Uh, and these are the ones that you would need to add in. Uh, the 400 BC for Nehemiah, which basically pins down the closing of the Old Testament. And then we've got uh, 50 AD, roughly, in the 50s, is the epistles of Paul and, and James. 
Those are the earliest New Testament documents, okay? Mark, the Gospel of Mark, roughly 66 AD, is the earliest gospel account. Uh, many scholars, most scholars believe that Mark came first, and then Matthew uh, and Luke uh, would have borrowed from Mark, and then there's another document called Q, uh, but gospel would have been the earliest one. So you see how that's even uh, 30 plus years, 33 roughly years removed from uh, the death of Christ, okay? But you see how uh, Paul and James, their writings are, are even earlier, so 16 years earlier than the first gospel. Some people see that as a problem, and that's not actually a problem, and we'll talk a little bit about this tonight. But it is really interesting that Paul and James, you know, Galatians and James, Galatians is, is obviously one of Paul's epistles, and uh, it, is, it is probably the earliest. And some people debate which one came first, James or, or um, Galatians. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I don't know if anyone knows. But they're very close, okay? Now, I want you to have in your mind here that all of this New Testament stuff ends with Revelation in 95 AD, roughly. Some scholars would even put John's gospel that late. I don't know. I'm, I'm not trained specifically in that to be able to give you any information beyond that. But what we all can agree on is that the New Testament, all of the books of the New Testament, are done in the first century. Okay? I want you to remember that. The New Testament is done. It is completed in the first century. That will be a very important thing for us to keep track of as we start to talk about some of these other things. Because next week... We will go into um, some stuff with the canon, and we'll start to look at these other Gospels that got excluded, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Judas, blah, blah, blah. You get all these other, why aren't those ones in the canon? And we'll come back to this first century thing will be important, all right? So hold on to that, but just let's have that in our mind, and then let's move on here, okay? So that's a zoomed-out picture of some of the major events in the biblical timeline. But let's take a look uh, at this idea, the Bible as history. Do historical matters matter to faith? So sometimes people will say, hey, if it was on the History Channel, it must be true. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. In, in, in every area of life, we have operating what we would call systematic biases. Anyone have any idea what I, what I mean when I say that? I, I am biased. What's it mean to be biased? Anybody got any guess? There's not a really a wrong answer to this. Anyone know what it means to be biased? Yeah. Predetermined. Sean says predetermined. So it's like, it's just to say, you know what? I, I am most inclined to see things from this perspective. Because I have a preconception, a presupposition. I have an idea. I presuppose. I'm not really interested in hearing another side. I'm going to argue for mine only. Okay? So we all have biases. Here's a, here's a simple analogy. Okay, um, let's, let's get the house divided. OU fans. It's a few. Okay. All right. Great. OSU. Wow. So we got the engineers in the room. All right. Good. <laughs> Imagine, imagine uh, that there, this is a bedlam game, okay, OSU versus OU, and there's a touchdown, OU's got the ball, and it's right on the line, but it's questionable. What do you think all the OU fans are going to say? It's in. 
What do you think all the OSU fans are going to say? Not a chance. That is a systematic bias. I am biased. I am inclined to see the world from this perspective because of what I brought with me. My history, my own ideas, my experiences. Okay, so is everything that's on the History Channel true? No. And we're not just trying to beat up the History Channel. There's lots of great scholars that end up showing up there. But who gets to choose which scholars get, get to get up there? <laughs> yeah, the History Channel. And do all scholars agree? No. Can I persuade you in a particular direction if I only present the scholars that represent my view? Right. So a lot of people will say, you know what, the Bible is not history. It's not like what we would see on the History Channel. It's more like uh, Aesop's fables, right? That's what it's more like. Not real history. And so we start to actually see um, something called a fact-value split. And it is really interesting when we start to do this. Okay, fact-value. Sometimes people will say in science and, and in real history, these are all facts. But in religion, we only deal in values. We don't deal in facts. And there is a hard dis uh, distinction made between uh, things that would have religious origins and things that are non-religious. And we make this um, false dichotomy because it isn't an either-or. Because you can have both on both sides. Do you think that people who put stuff on the History Channel, um, do you ever think they make any value claims? Yes. Do we as Christians make value claims? Yes. But do we also make fact claims? Yes. Just because we make the fact claim doesn't mean it's true. But there, well, we're not only making value claims. Don't ever let anyone push you into that corner and say, oh, you're a Christian. You're incapable of making fact claims. You only can make value claims. As Christians, we are making both. And everyone else in the world is making both facts and value claims. What we believe factually is that this stuff actually happened. And therefore, our values are informed by this stuff having actually happened in history. Before I move on, is there any questions on that distinction we just, we just pulled apart? Super important to have with us as we travel. But most people will say, uh, you know what? There's a difference here. One's on one side, the other's on the other. But I want to argue that historical matters do matter to faith, okay? So historical orthodoxy, real quick. Um, does anyone know what the word orthodox means? Or does anyone know what the word heresy means or heretical? Any takers? Yes, sir. Oh, yes, Augustine. Yeah, Augustine's maximum. Yeah, okay. Um, he says, in the essentials unity, the non-essentials, we can have diversity in all things charity. He's saying we can agree on the essentials, we can have diversity on the secondary issues, but it doesn't matter in everything, we ought to love one another and have, have charity. Charity doesn't mean to give money away. It does kind of now, but the original word was to actually love someone. Okay, that's, that's not a bad, that's, you know, circling the right carcass. Actually, orthodoxy literally just means, or orthodox means true. 
So it just means true. So heresy, a lot of times we say, oh, that has something to do specifically against God. Well, most, con most contexts when we would use the word heresy, it would have to do with something being uh, heretical in that sense. But I can say something that's heretical that just simply it's false. All right, so when we say historical orthodoxy, this is a word that will get thrown around when you do uh, this kind of stuff, we're actually saying it's historically true. And there's some people who will start arguing of the differences, and I'm not going to get into that because we've got enough on our plates right now. Um, but let's, let's talk about that. The, how important is history to the Christian and the Christian faith? I love this quote by this historian Mark Knoll uh, in the Dictionary for Theological Interpretation of the Bible. He says this. He says, The Christian stake in history is immense. Every aspect of lived Christianity which is worship, sacraments, daily godliness, private devotion, religiously inspired benevolence, preaching, every major theme of Christian theology, the nature of God in relation to the world, the meaning of Christ, the character of salvation, the fate of the universe, directly or indirectly involves questions about how the present relates to the past. Do you get that? He's saying everything we do in Christian life both in our practice and in our beliefs, is rooted in the question of what actually happened. How does the present relate to the past? So when we make fact claims as Christians, we are making them under this guideline that we believe this actually happened. And what actually happened in the past informs our behavior today. All right, we've got a lot of examples of that. What does Paul say about the resurrection of Jesus? If it didn't happen, what does he say? That's right. We should be pitied most of all, and we're still dead in our trespasses. If there was no historical death and resurrection of Jesus, you go home. Let's go have some fun. Let's go do something else. Because if that historical event is not true, today is greatly impacted by that, okay? So history matters to the Christian. Uh, how important is history to the Christian and the Christian faith? Here's another thing to think about. Historical study of the Bible also reminds us that the narrative of the, of the Bible refers to realities outside of the text. So we've got our Bible. You've got your Bible, okay? What we need to think about is that it doesn't end with the book in our hands, the book in our hands reflects something outside of the book. Do you get that? That's this, 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 this outside reality. This documents that reality, but do you get that these, this stuff is real people, real events, real emotions, real consequences, real actions in time? And that should inspire us. As we look at this book, we should say, this is real. There's something outside of the text. The text points us back to something. The text points us forward to something, doesn't it? That's beautiful. As Christians, we've got to hold on to that. It's not dead. It's not static. It's dynamic. It's pointing backwards to realities, and it's pointing forwards to future realities, and it also has something to speak of current realities how we live today, how we interact with the Lord today. So I love this idea by Daniel Milgore, who says historical study of the Bible also reminds us 
that the narrative of the Bible refers to the realities outside of the text. All right? So let's turn our attention to archaeology. So everyone has some familiarity with archaeology, and there's actually a, a distinct discipline called biblical archaeology, and it is mainly concerned with studying uh, you know, historical artifacts and doing digs that has something to do with uh, you know, the, the biblical account of history. So if you see my little word down there, I say, archaeology is no savior. Okay, that's kind of like, man, Rob, you're mean. Yeah, probably, but that's besides the point. This little textbook right here um, is Randall Price. Uh, it, well, it's just a book. It was one of my old textbooks from um, a biblical archaeology class I took in undergrad. And uh, one of the first things that, that they say when you get into that stuff, and I'm no expert on it at all, one class, and so that's what I'm speaking from, they say, they say, we Christians have a bad habit of trying to prove everything based on archaeology. And so they said, what we want to do as Christians is we want to allow archaeology to support the claims of the Bible, but archaeology never is to prove the claims of the Bible. Do you get that? That's a very important distinction, and we'll, we'll tease that out a little bit. There's this book I highly recommend is called The Stones Cry Out by Randall Price. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great resource and it covers lots of cool things that they have found that do support the biblical narrative from a historical perspective. But do you think everything uh, in the Bible is covered in here? <laughs> no. Do you think that they've found everything that whatever we would? No. But that isn't, that isn't a problem. And we'll tease this idea out, but let's look a little bit here. So there's this idea, and this is hard to see here, um, guilty unless proven innocent. There's this idea that some people would say, you know what, the Bible is guilty unless we can prove that it's innocent. What do we mean by that? Well, it claims all these historical things happened, but we're going to doubt them until archaeology proves that they happened. That's, that's the wrong way about looking about th at this. Okay? Can anyone uh, from, from archaeology prove every point in history, every, every major thing that's ever happened? No. Okay, so can we prove most of the things that have happened in history from archaeology? No. <laughs> Very few things can actually be proven, quote-unquote, from archaeology. So don't put the Bible in that box either. Archaeology is no savior for any historian. It is a supplement, and it is a support, and it is good. But it isn't going to be the end all, all right? So here's a little quote uh, from James Hoffmeyer. Uh, he, he's he's a, one of the authors from the book, Do Historical Matters Matter to Faith? And it's one of the books that we recommend for this week. An incredible book. I loved it. Uh, and he says this. He says, uh, the context was he was speaking to another professor. He's a scholar himself, and he was talking to another scholar professor. And this guy was a liberal uh, who basically was questioning whether or not you know, the real historical exodus happened. And he says to this guy, he says, I asked if he believed in Tutmosis III uh, invaded Canaan in the mid-15th century BC, besieging and taking the city of, of Megiddo. Uh, this military campaign is one of the best documented reports. He says, I reminded him there is still no archaeological evidence uh, from Megiddo for the Egyptian attack. Okay, so what he's, what he's actually saying is that there's this guy who's, who absolutely believes that this happened by this Egyptian king, uh, Tutmos III, he says that this actually happened, but can you prove it from archaeology? Nope. Well, we have all these documents that say it happened. Very, very well-preserved documents, that detailed report of, the, of, of this military campaign. 
but there's not a shred of archaeological evidence. And they've done digs and digs and digs uh, there, and they haven't been able to find that this event happened. Okay, so here's a question for us. Does that mean it didn't happen? No, it has nothing to do with it, does it? If they find something that shows it happened, that's cool. That would be support. But what we have to look at is absence of evidence is no evidence of absence. I, I can't argue that way. That would be to say that there is no purple stone in the universe. Well, have you looked everywhere? No. <laughs> you can't make those types of claims, right? And it's fallacious to say, since there's absence of evidence, then that therefore stands as evidence of absence. So just because we don't have archaeological evidence for claims of the Bible, that is not evidence against the Bible. That just means we're still in neutral. We're floating. It can go either way. But just because we can't find it in archaeology does not do anything positive towards the claim that it didn't happen. Any questions on that before we move on? Yes? Yeah, sure, sure. Yep, uh-huh. Yeah. Yep, that's great. Yeah, that's great. That's a really good question. So let me repeat it. She's saying the basic assertion is that um, when we go to the Book of Mormon, and it makes a lot of uh, historical claims. And so since we have no archaeological evidence for the claims of the Book of Mormon, what are we, what are we to do? Are we to, are we to basically put this on them? Or how do we handle that? How would we answer that? Um, I think that there is merit in that, but I, wouldn't, I don't think we're justified in basing our whole rejection of the system on a lack of archaeological evidence. But it is interesting, and I haven't looked this up uh, you know, in any scholarly journal or anything, so I can't back it up, I've, but I've heard that there's been some debate about uh, the Smithsonian and, and Mormons wanting specific things to be put in these museums. And they're like, look, man, there's, there, there's no evidence of that ever having happened in history, so we're not going to put it in there. So they're kind of applying that to them, and we would be kind of like, yeah, that's probably a good idea not to put that stuff in there. So I think that that is a great observation because that would be an argument I would use is to say, hey, uh, you know what? You say that um, in around 600 BC, a bunch of Jews came over here, Israelites came over and set up camp and, and uh, where, where is it at? <laughs> where are these cities? So I think that it's fair to argue like that, but I don't think we can make it a definitive claim that since there is no archaeological evidence for their claims, that it's evidence uh, against them. But I would, I would still push on that. Uh, I'll say one thing about the book of, like, that's a great question with Mormonism, but Mormonism has so many other opportunities to, uh, like, for instance, uh, like, speaking ex-cathedra, Lorenzo Snow was a guy that's a... Uh, uh, a famous Mormon, he made the statement that is seen as absolute truth to Mormons. Um, and the statement is this, as God is, no, no, excuse me, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become, or will be, man may become. So to me, and when I talk to them, I, I usually like per Rob's argument that we don't have a lot of, I mean, there's some archaeological evidence. They don't have any, but we have some. But their theological claims are, are easily debunked 
when it comes to some of those guys. But that was just an example of the ex-cathedra kind of guy that spoke as absolute truth, that when you say his name, everybody goes, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and to be fair, um, I would, out of, out of just a spirit of debate, I would press the archaeological evidence deal. But I don't think that I'd be founded to completely dismiss their faith based only on that. I need to do some other stuff because they could, they could do the same thing right back to me. And I would say, hey, but we comparatively are in a better position than you. We got some. <laughs> Some's better than zero. Uh, but I would need to go beyond that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes. Well, okay, so her, her statement is that since Mormonism is a more recent religion, then there should be more archaeological evidence. But their claim is that it's not a recent religion. It is a recent development from our perspective, because Joseph Smith came about in the mid-1800s, all right? Uh, but they claim that, so they're, now we're going to get off on Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism up here. But they claim that they are the Latter-day Saints. What does that mean? That they, they are the saints of, of, of old, but that, that have come as part of the final revelation of Jesus Christ. The Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, all these other books. They're, they're the final say. The Bible says some stuff. But we needed additional revelation. But they're still going to point back. They still claim all the old historic stuff. It's just the end and then some. But they would claim in you know around 600 BC that some people came over here to the Americas and all of that. They would claim that. That's old stuff. 600 BC, that's old. We, we would say, ah. So I think we can't completely nail them down just because they are a new religion. They came on the scene recently, but their claims are historically old. Yes? Yeah. Okay, I'll answer this one last question, and then we got to get back on the topic. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll have a Mormonism class. Um, so they do believe, and here's a sticky, sticky deal. They do believe, just like we would believe, that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and that is how you are saved. They believe that he is the Son of God. Okay, um, Check this out. Uh, we got to go quick. They, they could throw you the gospel at the surface level, and it would sound great. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe he's the Son of God? Do you believe he was sent to die on a cross for your sins? Do you believe he was dead, buried, and raised after three days? Yes. Well, you're a believer. But who is Jesus is the question that we need to ask. That's where we start to pry, and, and they would believe, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses and any others that would be in the Arian uh, group, which the Arians, back in the 300s, the Council of Nicaea was, was put together to actually answer uh, Arius and the Arians who claimed that Jesus Christ was created in time. Jesus Christ is the first creation, and through him all else, all other things were created, but Jesus himself is not co-eternal with God, but was created in time by God. And then there's this other thing called modalistic monarchianism, which means that he can become God over time. So when we start to talk about who is Jesus, we run into problems. When we just leave it at what did Jesus do, 
we would probably would agree at a significant uh, part, right? So, okay, let's get back on uh, track here. Absence of evidence is no evidence of absence, all right? So, historical orthodoxy. Wasn't theology up for grabs in the early church? All you Christians have the same Bible yet can't agree. That's why there's so many denominations. How then do we know the Bible reflects the actual theology or the historical view of theology? Have you ever heard that? Has anyone ever thrown that in your face? Hey, same book, right? Why can't you guys get along? <laughs> so if you guys can't get along, how do we know that this accurately reflects you know, the historical perspective? Because if you Baptists wrote it, it would be by full immersion only, explicitly. It is. I tend to agree with you, Paul. I lean Presbyterian in a lot of ways, but I'm a believer's baptism guy, for sure. So this idea... What do we say to it? Well, let's, let's, let's take a look. This isn't the end all here, but it's just some ideas. Right? So disagreement doesn't mean that there isn't truth to be known. And actually, uh, what was your name, sir? Toby? Tony. Tony. This is where I would apply uh, what Tony brought up from Augustine. He says, in the essentials unity, the non-essentials diversity, and all things charity. We can interpret the Bible and get some secondary conclusions and have some diversity, and that's fine. But you know what we can't have diversity on? The primary things. The primary stuff. Who is Jesus? That's in the primary bucket. We can't have diversity in that. We have to have unity. And that's what Augustine was arguing for. So we can have a disagreement, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a truth to be known. You and I can get together and do some math on the board, and we might come to two different conclusions. But if the formula is, is right, if there's something in it that is that is we're actually trying to find an answer to, just because we both come to the wrong conclusions doesn't mean that there isn't a right answer to be found. So we can disagree as men and women, but that doesn't mean that therefore must not be any truth in the Bible, because these guys can't get it together. That is, that's, that's a wrong way to look at it, all right? So we can disagree, but simply because we disagree, that doesn't mean that there isn't a truth to be known, all right? So however, there is orthodoxy in history. There is truth. There is some consistency. The very core of Christianity is reflected in the New Testament documents, namely in Christology. So when we talk about Christology, we're talking about who is Jesus. That is super, super important. Where do we get this? From the Bible. Who is Jesus? Okay, so Christology is the Bible's major theme. I love this quote from Michael Kruger, who is a leading scholar on the New Testament. Uh, and he says, The New Testament bears incredible witness to the unified doctrinal core, in particular with regard to Christology, centered on Jesus and his apostles, a core that is, in turn, grounded in Old Testament messianic prophecy. We as believers would say, you know what the central theme of the Bible is, the whole, the Old and New Testament, is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament pointing forwards to him, the New Testament revealing him as he came. Anybody have any problems with that or need some further clarification? Because if we don't get that one, we can stop here and talk about this one the rest of the night. Yes. Yeah, sure, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, her, her, her comment was, wasn't there 
hundreds of prophecies that Jesus would have needed to fulfill. Yeah, there's there's a lot. There's a there's a ton. And that's why we see synergy. And then what are the words of Jesus Christ himself? What did he say about the Old Testament? He says that the law and the prophets they testify to what? Me. <laughs> He's, he's like, dude, you're missing it. If you think any of that is about anything else, you missed it because it's testifying to me. It's all about me. Christology. That's the theme of the Bible. So Michael Kruger says, New Testament bears incredible witness to the unified doctrinal core. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Historical elements of Genesis. We're going to switch gears for a little bit and go back to Old Testament. So real events. So there's a creation. There's moral innocence. All right. Then there's a literary style change in chapter 11 and verse 27. And, and some of these, we don't, we don't have time to go into them. But there's a, a narration time. There's a lapsed time. Do you get that the first uh, few chapters of Genesis goes quickly? It's like bam, 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 and then it goes. Abraham. But before that, I mean, you're like trees, stars, moon, sun, bam, bam, and then all of a sudden, slows down. All right. Uh, we can debate this. Uh, I won't take this survey because I'm scared to. Um, but young earth versus old earth, creationist, right? Oh, my God. Uh, we're split the church over that one some places. So I'm not even going to open that can of worms. But we get into that debate in Genesis, don't we? We start to look at it. Is, it. is it real, literal days? How do we interpret this? And we'll talk about interpretation a little bit later. But what we have to do is we have to agree, no matter what we do with that, whether you're an old earth or a young earth, um, those are the only two options. There's some other some weird stuff, but the, 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 they don't count. Uh, is that these are real events. Now, what's the length of time? Let's debate it. The thing we can't debate, the thing we must agree on, is that they are real events. Okay? Real events, creation actually happened, and that's where we get this whole idea of this moral innocence, right? So we look at the Garden of Eden. What happened in the Garden of Eden? I love this little painting here. Um, it's got the snake wrapped around the tree, and it's the devil up there, and he's tempting them, right? So creepy, so weird. But the idea is that we have to look at the historical Adam and Eve. So the primary message is that there is a common source for humanity, and sin is an alien intruder, and it doesn't belong. Okay? And we also have to agree that there is uh, a, a, a human beings, that there's a special creation. So if you try to do without the special origin of human beings, then moral intuitions are lost. All right? If you believe in evolution, and this isn't the time to talk about this, but um, I'm going to say it's false. And besides the science, theologically, you can't be a theistic evolutionist. And that's some people try to do that. And I'm not going to explain what that is right now. I'll look it up if you want to. But they try to say, yeah, maybe God had some part in it. But basically, we evolved. If we evolved, then what do you do with the fall? What do you do with Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, the God-man. Well, that means that Jesus Christ as a man kind of is an accident. Kind of just to chance that Jesus would ever become a man, if you truly believe in that. So we have to hold to that there's a special origin of human beings, and that's where moral intuitions are based. Because we believe that we are a fallen creation in need of a redeemer. You get rid of that stuff, what do you have left of Christianity? Which is, which is all about Jesus, the Redeemer, coming to redeem. 
All right? So we, we've got to look at Genesis as true history, literal history, but we can also look at literary symbolism. Uh, when I, in Bible class last summer at Biola, uh, we got to Skype in uh, C. John Collins, who's one of the, the leading scholars on the Old Testament, uh, and uh, we were asking him questions and stuff, but we are talking about the snake in the garden, we ask him, what do we do with that? And he, and he says, he says, we can look at it as literal history, but still allow for there to be some literary symbolism. Okay, so I know that we all went to probably Baptist Sunday school, but I think we can get this answer right. Who's the snake? The devil. <laughs> okay, good. Thank God. <laughs> because if it's something else, then we're in trouble. The scripture says that the curse would be on the snake. He would grow, you know, go on his belly and all of that. And that's okay, but we can still allow that symbolism to be there because at the end of the day, it's not just a snake. <laughs> it's the devil tempting. And that's important for us to get, right? So the Bible can communicate literal truths using symbols. Where we get into that, we'll talk about that in the interpretation step. We'll, one of our last sessions, we'll actually talk about interpreting the Bible because it's important if you get that step right, okay? But we can look at this as literal history. Um, so let's, let's look at the Gospels as history. The Gospels were written to give permanence to eyewitness testimony beyond the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Richard Bauckham is, is the number one uh, scholar on the New Testament Gospels, uh, and he, he argues in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels as eyewitness testimony. He says that this, what, this is the purpose, right? So on the basis of the five reasons, William Craig lists, he says, we are justified in accepting the historical reliability of what the Gospels say about Jesus unless they are proven to be wrong. At the very least, we cannot assume that they are wrong until proven right. Remember, that's that guilty until proven innocent. That's, that's the backwards way of doing it. All right, and he says, the person who denies the Gospels' reliability must bear the burden of proof. All right. Uh, so William Lane Crane gives five lists, uh, the five reasons, and they're, they're on your handout. Uh, we don't have time to go through these, but I recommend you reading them. But basically, his first argument is that there's insufficient time for legendary influences to expunge the historical facts. These were written down so early that the people that they were about were still alive. The people that were in these stories. So you don't have time for legend to creep in and to wipe away what actually happened, all right? He says the Gospels are not analogous to folk tales or urban legends, right? He says uh, those types of things rarely concern actual historical individuals and are thus not analogous to the Gospel narratives. It's a totally different genre. These are, this is naming real people, real historical events. You could go look, go talk to them. They're still alive, right? So eyewitness testimony. The Jewish transmission of sacred traditions was highly developed and reliable. In an oral culture like that of the first century Palestine, the ability to memorize and retain large tracts of oral tradition was a highly prized and highly developed skill. From the earliest age, children in the home, elementary school, and the synagogue were taught to memorize faithfully sacred tradition. The disciples would have exercised similar care with the teachings of Jesus. You ever heard anyone say, oh, you know what, the, that time in between when the, when the events happened, the events happened, and then they got written down. Um, so here's the Gospels. Right? So what happened here, right? <laughs> Let's play a game of telephone and prove how it couldn't have been accurate. <laughs> have you ever heard anyone say that? 
play the, let's play the game of telephone where you tell one person one thing, and by the time it gets to the end, it's, it's all messed up and jumbled up. All right, well, what's the problem with that? One is it's trying to force a 21st century perspective on the first century reality. These people were legit at memorizing stuff. We can't even fathom how good they were at this stuff. And it was a prized skill, and it was something that they grew up with from the very, very beginning. All right? So there are no 21st century analogies that we can, we can, we can try to put on it to disprove their reliability. All right? And then he says there are significant restraints on the uh, embellishment. Right? People are still alive. And then he goes on five. The gospel writers have a proven track record of historical reliability. All right. So the Gospels were written to give permanence to eyewitness testimony beyond the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Richard Bauckham, all right. So what had they witnessed? What, had they, uh, what did they do to share their story? Well, they witnessed the life and teaching of Jesus. And they went and taught that. And how they did that was they preached, right? So teaching and preaching. So this is a very significant uh, detail because the disciples, the apostles, didn't just go say, hey, we're going to start a little club, uh, see you guys later. No, they said, you know what? If we don't go tell people about this, it's dead with us. And so the Gospels were written down to preserve their testimony because the eyewitnesses, were they going to die eventually? Yes. And we needed to preserve that eyewitness account, all right? So, uh, in as much as as undertaken to compile a narrative, so this is informed, uh, this is Luke 1, and I'm going quickly because we went into Mormonism a bit. So, read that, Luke 1, 1 through 4, and he's, he's saying that this is, this is an account. This is a reliable account. People are still around, right? I went, I went and checked it out. Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, Ministers of the word, preachers of the word, teachers of the word. That's how they spread their message in the early church. All right? here's, here's an idea. All of history is known through eyewitness testimony. This is one of my favorite eyewitness testimonies. This is from about 10 years ago. Uh, maybe some of you remember it. Maybe you don't, but I love it. actually made a mashup and put that to music and he's like arc and spark and he's like really really hilarious his i had to stop it because we're, we we don't have time uh but his famous statement and i say it all the time i say it to my kids and they have no idea where it came from but it came from that guy he says reality hits you hard bro <laughs> but does anyone question whether or not that man was in an accident you, you get the idea that, no, he's a pretty good eyewitness. He was there, right? 
And who are the news people trying to talk to? The eyewitnesses. <laughs> Even better, the person who is actually involved. So if you think of the New Testament characters from that perspective, they're the most qualified to tell the story. They not only saw it, but they were involved. Just like in that car crash, there were some people behind that guy. Who, who's the news people interested in talking to? Not them. The guy. So who's, who's, who's Luke interested in going to talk to? The apostles. <laughs> the people who were witnesses to this. The people who were healed. The people who experienced it firsthand. Richard Bauckham, I just introduced you to him. I'll play just a couple of minutes. I, I encourage you to go look this up. You can just Google Richard Bauckham and YouTube and uh, the, the eyewitnesses. The gospel is eyewitness testimony. You can see his whole video. I'm just going to play a couple minutes of it. standard scholarly view of how the traditions about Jesus reach the evangelists when they were writing their Gospels is the view that formed criticism proposed early in the 20th century. And the view is that the eyewitnesses who heard Jesus speak and saw the events of his life presumably started the traditions off. But then there began a whole process of these traditions passing through the oral traditions of the, of the early Christian communities until eventually uh, they were tapped by the uh, evangelists. Um, and during that process, of course, anything could happen. And there have been different ways of reading it. Some people managed to read it in a fairly conservative way, as though the tradition preserved the traditions pretty well. Um, but the form critics um, and the real disciples of the form critics tend not to think that because they stress that the communities and the oral tradition was not really interested in history. So they have no real motive for preserving traditions about Jesus accurately. Their motives are much more to adapt and add to and kind of create freely uh, traditions about Jesus um, and add them to the tradition. So and that's why on the form critical view you need, if you are going to say something about the historical Jesus, you need criteria to distinguish authentic material in the Gospels from inauthentic material. Um, and that's the way a whole lot of Gospel scholarship has gone. So I'm going to stop it there because we don't have time. But he goes in some really good stuff, and he starts to say, okay, these form critics make these arguments and the assertions. But here's what the Gospels are like. They're more like biographies. All right. It's not, hey, we wrote some stuff down and then we added some stuff to it and added some stuff to it later and embellish it, sweeten it up. It's, you know, these guys are writing, and, and, and the genre that it fits in is that of a biography. What's a biography? It's a true story based on someone's life, isn't it? And that's what the New Testament is, is supposed to be uh, reflective of, specifically the Gospels as eyewitness account, is that they fit the biography model and that they were interested in current history. So history from our perspective is different from history from their perspective. We have all these museums and all these things. They didn't have that stuff. So if you're going to capture history, it had to be current history. You had to capture it while the people were still alive or it was, or it was over. 
We can go and we get archives and thousands of documents stored in these places. They didn't have that type of stuff back then. Uh, and so they had to preserve history that was current history, uh, and that's what they were interested in, and that's why they wrote these Gospels, which were in the form of biography. And these were stories of real people, and Richard Balcom goes into all this, and it's great stuff. So all of history is known through eyewitness testimony. So what did the early Christians believe? Remember, we talked a little bit about this last week. Um, I'll go quickly through these, uh, but these are really important. Scriptures uh, is the first S of uh, the five S's of orthodoxy. So the Hebrew scriptures were the theological baseline. We started here, and then we moved on to the New Testament, but we did not leave behind the Old Testament. And then summaries. So there's doctrinal summaries that they believed in, and 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5 is a great example of that. And uh, Jonathan Morrow uh, is quoting Bauckham in his book, but he says, we have unequivocal, uh, unequivocal evidence in Paul's letters that the early Christian movement did practice the formal transmission of tradition, that they had these summaries of theology that they would, they would, they would share. And remember Paul wrote before the Gospels were written? But he's, he's reflecting early theological summaries um, that were already circulating, all right? And then there was singing. There was theology and song. Uh, this is another quote. When they gathered, early Christians sang their theology and hymns to show their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and Colossians 1, 15 through 20 are two of the mo most famous in the New Testament. You remember that Philippians verse, right? Uh, that's that whole idea of Jesus Christ uh, not concerning equality with God, something to be grasped, but he lowered himself, right? Uh, took on the form of a servant. That, that's, that's, those were songs. And so they would, they would sing their theology, and we can look at that and have a good idea of what the Christians believed in the first century. And then, of course, sacraments, so baptism and the Lord's Supper. Dr. Morrow says, baptism and the Lord's Supper were practiced on a regular basis in the local church. Essentially, you have a theological object lesson going on every time each of these ordinances is practiced in early Christianity. So who started that? Jesus, right? And so we know that these people had some ideas, and they were not just developed later on. They were reflected, actually, in that early church right history. So I don't have time to go through these, uh, but they're in your paper, your notes. Some great snapshots, uh, which is the fifth S of orthodoxy. All these different church fathers who quote the scriptures and quote the different things. Like this one, Papias, who lived in AD 125. Uh, it was a friend of Polycarp. He says this, he valued the living voice of the apostles. Um, what's that living voice? That's that eyewitness testimony, isn't it? And uh, Justin Martyr, he talks about what they did. They gathered in one place and they read the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets. It is clear the early church looked at these writings as scripture and it was a part of their early church service. So even before we had the canon, you have these letters and these, these gospels accepted and incorporated into their church service, okay? So I don't have time to go through these. Um, I apologize, but here's our summary, keywords. Uh, I want to show one idea, and then I'm going to let Chris take it back over. Uh, our major ideas, biblical history, creation account includes man and morality, the, the uh, New Testament is eyewitness testimony, think biography, and the five S's of orthodoxy, scripture, summary, singing, sac sacraments, and the snapshots. Here's the books for this week, but I want to give you one idea and then I'm done. 
I wrote up here at the beginning, God's action. A lot of times people will say the only time that God acts is through miracles, and that's not true. God acts primarily in two ways. The first way is through providence. And that is through nature. Okay, God provides for us by all sorts of natural means. Then the second is that it is, there is miracle, and those are the supernatural. So the idea here is, though, the scriptures testify to both. So when we talk about history, biblical history, we're concerned with God's actions. And that includes his providence in nature and his miracles. You can summarize it by basically uh, talking like this, four things. God created the universe and made it exist. Okay, so that's a miracle. But then he sustains, doesn't he? Through providence. He also gave us Jesus Christ, who would come through the virgin birth. Miracle? <laughs> right? So we have these ideas. Think of this. The Bible reflects both of types of God's actions, and this is summarized well with the Reformers who, who, who argue that, no, the only time that God works is not just through miracles. God works through providence as well. Okay, I know it was a little bit of a, maybe a shock to some of you about the autograph comment last week, that we don't have all, we don't have any original autographs. But I wanted you to see there's reason to believe in the scriptures that we hold. Because these, these church fathers, these snapshots, these are real early. And, and I want, also want you to remember uh, John 14, 26. Anybody know what that verse says? I, I mean, I, I looked it up for this class, but, you know, so I'm, I cheated. But, um, no, that's that's the same passage, John 14, 6, 26. That's the moment right before Jesus goes to the cross. What does he say to them? He says, I want you to know the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he's going to give you, he's going to help you remember what, every, he's going to help you remember everything I've done. So even though it was the timeline, 30 years, but before the, the gospel writers are like, dude, we got to write these down. That gum, we gotta we gotta put this this to pen, uh, put this to paper. Well, the Holy Spirit was at work too, uh, helping remember. Now, uh, but um, I, I, there was a a guy that we had come to Council Road, and I'm just racking my brain on his name. Um, uh, but he was a he was a, a Bible teacher up in Michigan. And uh, he did a lot of biblical artifacts, and I'm just mad at myself for not remembering his name. Um, Scott Carroll, Dr. Scott Carroll did it. Um, he had a class where he would, uh, Paula, did you ever hear him teach? He, initially, initially. Okay. Yeah, okay, so he, um, he had a class where he taught how... Um, how people wrote, the, like Rob said, these people in the first century, they were serious about translation. And they, they were serious about memorization. We, they weren't first, they weren't, uh, you know, 21st century people. Uh, that we can't remember a phone number anymore, right? Uh, 
Uh, we used to, we'd have to memorize phone numbers, didn't we? Because we didn't, couldn't call anybody. Yeah. Uh, but now we don't, we don't, we forget phone numbers. But uh, Scott Carroll had this class. He said, okay, you're going to transcribe the, the original text on parchment and scrolls with a, uh, a pen like they used back in the first century. And he said, and you have to do it in low light. And he said, if you have any mistakes, you fail. And it was a group project. So they were like, you're kidding me. No, no, you're going to fail. You, I'm going to flunk all of you if you have a mistake. And, and, and his point that he was making through the class, that these people, these scribes, when they put their name on it, I mean, this was their life's work. Can you imagine your life work being to copy one scroll? No, we can't think. We, we wouldn't do that because we're 21st century people. But they would spend their entire life going, this has got to be perfect. And, and I loved that analogy when, when Dr. Carroll would come. He came several times, and it just impacted me. At, at, uh, so we got to be careful to understand that sometimes we read the Bible, and we have our 21st century uh, mentality. And, and these were people, like Rob said, written, they were in time, and they were impacted by their time. They were impacted by their culture, just like we have been impacted by our culture when we used to remember phone numbers, and today we don't. We can't remember phone numbers. Same thing. Hey, mental sweat, good job tonight. And uh, hey, we only have three more weeks of this. So let's go, let's roll up our sleeves and let's get it done. Lord, lead us. We love you and we thank you for the push. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Have a great night.